This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all new, better than ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us. As always, plenty happens between the time I sign off one week and start the next. The biggest story is that early this afternoon, Daniel Andrews announced he would leave office as Victorian Premier at five o'clock tomorrow. He entered Parliament in 2002. The Labor government under Andrews has been in power in Victoria since 2014. Andrews is the longest serving Labor Premier in Victoria's history. The Premier, as I said, for nine years and the leader of the Labor Party for 13. He said earlier today that the only way he knows how to do the job is, quote, to have it consume me to have it define me. To a certain extent, every waking moment is about the work and that takes a toll, unquote. Well, some of his decisions have taken a toll on Victorians and the national economy. He has spiralling debt. He is leaving with many concerns about his premiership unresolved. But beyond politics, I admire those who offer themselves for service. He has done that. He's left a trail of destruction, I think, but I certainly wish him well. Well, I guess viewers will expect me to say something about rugby. I have written about the demolition of Australian rugby at the World Cup in Today, in the Brisbane Courier-Mail, the Sydney Daily Telegraph and the Australian newspaper, so you can get that all online. I've written that today. But for the first time ever, Australia does not make the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup. I've said many times, McLennan, the chairman, has to go, and his captain's pick, Eddie Jones, should go with him. I mean, they should be gone by now. When McLennan knifed the former coach, Dave Rennie, and boasted about securing Eddie Jones, who had just been sacked by England, but previously he had been sacked by Australia after losing seven tests in a row, then sacked from Queensland, then sacked from Saracens, and then at the end of last year, sacked by England. While McLennan was assuring Dave Rennie that he would coach Australia up to the World Cup, McLennan, the chairman, who knows nothing about rugby, 
was actually negotiating with Jones, who must have thought all his Christmases had come at once, had just been sacked, with the intention of sacking Rennie. Now, all this is costly stuff. Rennie is still being paid. Jones has a mammoth salary of a million dollars and up to 11 assistant coaches, unheard of in any sport, and certainly rugby. The game is in trouble now because the wrong people are there. McLennan and Jones initiated their conspiracy against Rennie, and now history will record the catastrophic failures that followed. I've outlined all of this in my article today. But as someone who's coached Australia, I was both angry and ashamed that good young men wearing a wallaby jersey were standing after the game in the middle of the rugby paddock on which they just played and openly weeping in pictures that television took around the world. Well done, McLennan and Jones, visiting this humiliation on young men from which they may never recover. Well, look, comedians can be very clever. I don't know who this bloke is, but here is a typical Eddie Jones, arrogant, full of himself press conference, and the comedian takes off Eddie Jones splendidly. Have a look at this and get a laugh. We need one. A disastrous World Cup for Australian rugby, would you agree? Well, you don't know what you're talking about, mate. Now, this is exactly where I want us to be. Now we're giving us a chance, everybody riding us off. You know, tell us we're terrible and see what happens, mate. Well, you were terrible against Wales. Well, I actually thought we were amazing, mate. Tactically, I thought we got it spot on. Yeah, I said, let Wales come on to you, mate. Let them have the ball. Lure them into a full set security. And when they least expected, mate, pounce. But you, but you didn't pounce. I said, when they least expected, mate. You know, maybe not tonight, maybe not tomorrow, mate. When they least expect it. You know, but I wouldn't expect you guys to understand it because you don't know anything about rugby, mate. You know, well, you guys are so negative. I mean, where were you guys when we were top of that group? In June, July and August, eh? Well, the only reason you were top of the group at that stage was because of alphabetical order. See, that's the kind of negativity I'm talking about, mate. Scumbags. Was it disrespectful to Wales to say you'd no doubt you'd win on Sunday? And did I say which Sunday, mate? No, but I presume... No, you... no, so you presume, mate. Yeah, because I was talking about next Sunday. Yeah, against Portugal. OK? And I would never be disrespectful towards Wales, mate. You know, I think what they've done tonight is an amazing achievement for a little country that it is, with only three million people. I mean, is it even a real country, mate? Or is it just the arsehole of another country? There's a lot of people who want you sacked as Wallabies head coach. Will you stay on it? Well, I'm actually getting hundreds of messages, mate. Well, people begging me to stay. You know, people that know about rugby, mate. Yeah, you know, I've got them all here, mate. Please, Eddie, don't leave Australia. Stay, Eddie, please. Keep doing the job you're doing, Eddie, mate. You're doing great. We love you. You know? I'm getting hundreds of these messages from people all over New Zealand. Okay. Anyway, mate, I don't expect you scumbags to know anything about rugby. So just know it's all part of the plan, mate. This is exactly where I want us to be. <laughs> How clever is that? His name is Connor Moore, I think. That's exactly Eddie Jones. 
should be gone yesterday. And that other bloke with him, McLennan. But then we go to the bureaucracy in Canberra and this powerful public servant, Michael Pizzullo, is in trouble. He's being investigated by the Public Service Commission. It's an interesting story, this. The bloke was in charge of internal security. He was lobbying influential people outside the Turnbull and Morrison governments to censor the reporting of national security issues after the Australian Federal Police controversially raided three Australian journalists over their reporting. You might remember all that. He sent WhatsApp messages to Scott Briggs, a Liberal Party lobbyist, to convince Prime Ministers Turnbull and Morrison to introduce a system which is called D-notices, by which government agencies could pressure media organisations not to publish stories deemed damaging to national security. Now, on the other side of the argument is the free speech question, isn't it? Anyway, his end result was what he wanted to do, criminalise journalists in some circumstances for reporting what they'd been told by government whistleblowers. Pizzullo used the Liberal power broker Scott Briggs to try to influence Prime Minister's Terminal and Morrison to give the Australian Signals Directorate, in which he was the senior public servant, the right to access the private information of Australians in the name of increasing security. When the Federal Police raided the home of Nukes Corp journalist Arnica Smethurst, Pizzullo praised the police officers and called publicly for the jailing of the person who'd leaked the document. Along the way, Pizzullo was allegedly denigrating both public servants and government ministers who he believed were pulling the wrong strings. Well, now, of course, Pizzullo has responsibility as a senior public servant to be apolitical. He is in trouble. Against that, I guess, the issue of national security is important. Where do you put in the full stop? Well, Qantas pilots have now added their voice in calling for the chairman of Qantas, Richard Goiter, to stand down. The pilot's president, Tony Lucas, has written to the new CEO, Vanessa Hudson, indicating the pilot's decision. The text of the letter could have been sent to the president of Rugby Australia, Joe Roff, expressing the same sentiments about this Hamish McLennan, the chairman of Rugby Australia, the same sentiments as the pilots expressed about the Qantas chairman, Richard Goiter. The pilots wrote, quote, Richard Goiter has overseen one of those damaging periods in Qantas history which has included the sacking of 1,700 workers, allegations of illegally marketing cancelled flights and a terribly managed return to operations after COVID-19. The letter said, the morale of pilots has never been lower. We have totally lost confidence in Mr Goiter and his board, unquote. Well, pilots, no airline without pilots. I note that in all of this, Qantas are wanting to increase the price of airfares because of the increased price of fuel. You are kidding, Vanessa Hudson. I'll tell you something, and I've made this point before. If you charge $1,100 one way, Sydney to Canberra, and you're thinking of increasing that, you are just sending passengers to Virgin. To all my viewers, though, in regional Australia, Rex Airlines, who do a good job, are going to reduce flights from Albury, Coffs Harbour, Griffith, Narandra, Orange Parks and Port Macquarie to Sydney. Reduce the number of flights. From October 30, it will actually temporarily suspend flights from Sydney to Armidale, no flights, until March 30 next year. Rex Airlines have blamed Qantas for their, quote, relentless pillaging of the regional services pilots and staff shortages. I mean, this is a tragedy for regional and remote communities. You think of 
pregnant women who want to get down here to a gynaecologist and so on. For many, Rex is the only airline operating. And air travel civilises people in the bush. It gives them access to the benefits that we have in the city. Rex have said the reductions are temporary and they hope to return to the standard flight schedule for March next year, but it's a kick in the guts to the people west of the Great Dividing Range, but what's new? They're treated like second-class citizens. And just on the bush, metropolitan Australia doesn't understand what an El Nino climate pattern means to farmers. Farmers have had a couple of good years with significant growth, but they came on the side of dreadful bushfires and floods that have taken their toll. And now there's El Nino. Farmers face the risk of heat stress on crops like barley, wheat and canola. Then there is reduced rainfall and farmers are now feeding stock. Drought. Very costly operation. One of my mates is running up a bill of $40,000 a month for trying to keep his stock alive. If you're a dairy farmer, you've got to get extra feed to keep the milk flowing so that people in metropolitan Australia who rarely think of the farmer can have their cafe latte and buy their kids' milkshakes. El Nino is going to create havoc for farmers. And then we're still bombarded with this voice. We read that the Northern Territory school system is failing students. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? At least one in five is effectively unfunded. In some cases, not even providing full-time teachers. This is the Northern Territory school system. 58% of all students and 85% of Indigenous students fall below minimum literacy and numeracy standards. Attendance rates are sometimes as low as 20% in some schools. This can be fixed now. I'll tell you what, the voice sure as hell won't fix it. Warren Mundine addressed the National Press Club today and rightly attacked corporate Australia, saying, quote, large corporates have been advocating for the voice. But when was the last time he said any of them raised awareness about violence and abuse in remote Aboriginal communities? He said, when will Qantas paint one of its planes with a call to confront the violence and abuse of Aboriginal women and children in remote Australia. As Warren Mundina said, lots of well-intentioned people are enthusiastic of the symbolism of the shiny new thing, the voice. He said, but when it comes to doing the challenging work on specific areas of need, the enthusiasm wanes. Corporate Australia, eh? Well, when the referendum is lost, those boards or the directors of those boards should resign, shouldn't they? The S campaign is now facing insurmountable odds. Prime Minister Albanese has given everything to it. David Cameron in the UK gave everything to oppose Brexit. He lost. He resigned. Will Prime Minister Albanese follow the same example and resign? I know that Sam Newman, the former AFL great, has got into trouble calling for fans at the MCG to drown out the welcome to country ceremony and sing the Seekers anthem, I am Australian. We are one, but we are many. Now, I'm not in favour of booing people, but Newman has the courage to say what everybody's thinking. And I quote him, we are sick and tired of this. This is his welcome to country. He said, I find it insulting and demeaning to be welcomed to a country where I live. He said, I've lived all my life here. I pay taxes. I've contributed. Like everyone else, we want to be united one country. I don't know why we try, he said, to divide each other on race. To say that I have to be welcomed to every single thing I step into, restaurants, churches, creches, fates, it's out of control. And Sam Newman says correctly, it's exponentially getting worse and worse because no one will push back on it. Well, Sam Newman has called the Indigenous 
voice to Parliament, quote, a push for funds and money. He said, it's now nothing more than a grab for money, for reparation, for the social elite to cream and skim the top, and that's all it is. Well, the lefties have gone after Sam Newman, but I think he speaks for millions of Australians. We are sick of it. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Back in a moment. Well, perhaps Albanese and the Australian rugby coach Eddie Jones should join forces. Everything they touch turns to failure. As I said last week, for both of them, there are no sensible answers, only excuses. And where there is an answer, it's way off the mark. I have had, as I've told you, something to say about rugby in today's Australian, the Daily Telegraph and Brisbane's Career Mail. You can access my column online. It's not fluttering, nor should it be. And so it is with the Prime Minister. We're entitled to keep asking how Brittany Higgins received $3 million for, quote, future economic loss, past economic loss, general damages and future assistance with at-home care and past and future out-of-pocket expenses. At-home care? The woman's trotting around the world with your $3 million, allegedly, and we don't know why she received the money. Failure of government and a failure of the opposition to keep at that issue. Then, of course, we're at Qantas, protected by the government from competition. Another big failure. Then we've got the industrial relations legislation, 784 pages, 500 pages of explanatory memorandum. The end result will be what the unions want. Albanese says he's governing for everybody. But as I said last week at the ALP conference, there were no negotiations, no heated arguments, no prolonged discussions. The deals with the union movement had been done. From the perspective of the economy, another diabolical failure. Bowen's energy policy will secure that failure. Remember, there is legislation on the books. I'll raise this later with Matt Canavan that whoever's in government must secure 80% of the electricity from renewable energy by 2030. That's law. And they won't make it. They'll break the law. Who's going to be arrested in government for breaking the law? Because it won't happen. Another failure. Then there's the voice. Who's the Prime Minister governing for? Like Eddie Jones in rugby, he's just trying to save his job. Anywhere and everywhere. On the voice. When voters expect priority to be given to cost of living. The Albanese government was elected with 32% of the vote. I'm telling you, he is losing the confidence of a large swag of voters. People in the Labor camp will say, on voting intentions, Labor still outscores the coalition after preferences. Well, that might be now. Oppositions don't win government. Governments lose government and they're heading in that direction. On the measure of which party is listening and focusing on the right issues, Labor has dropped from 41% in January to 28% now. And that's reflected in the latest poll on The Voice. But then we have this pathetic, weak and evasive announcement that there'll be an inquiry into Australia's response to the pandemic, to coronavirus. Well, of course, there won't be. This is just rhetoric. Paul Kelly's been around a long time writing in Canberra. He called it a stitch-up, which is exactly what it is. This is politics rotten to the core. As you know, every day we were lectured by state premiers. It was fear-mongering at its worst. Yet we had unfair and unjustified dictatorial behaviour by state governments, lockdowns, closed schools, shut the borders, you can't do business, you can't attend the funeral of a relative, you can't leave your home. And in New South Wales, people woke to see uniformed men brandishing guns, presumably to deal with all these branded criminals that didn't yield to the dictates of the state. They were actually sitting on park benches. State governments, eh? Well, the state governments are immune from this inquiry. 
This was tyranny and government dictatorship at its worst by state governments. They were dogmatically wrong, yet those same state governments are now exempt from Albanese's inquiry. Here we go again. Attacked the Morrison government. And fair enough, they got plenty wrong. But if the pandemic is, as the Prime Minister said, the most significant global crisis that we've faced in decades, then the response by governments of all stripes should be under the microscope with an inquiry with the powers of a royal commission. This inquiry has no teeth. It's an inquiry when you don't have an inquiry. The IR legislation looks after Labor's mates. Here, the Albanese government is looking after its state brothers and sisters. What should a fully empowered inquiry address? Well, I've told you many times, but Adam Crichton, writing from America, hit the nail on the head, a really smart young man, this fellow, and he should be the subject of an inquiry, and these things I'm saying should be the subject of an inquiry, and they won't be. Adam wrote, COVID-19 didn't print trillions of dollars, euros and pounds, which have prompted rampant inflation, years of declining living standards, high interest rates and a massive surge in inequality. He wrote, the virus didn't close schools and universities, ruin small businesses, delay medical treatments, isolate people from their loved ones. It didn't force millions of people to take a rushed vaccine against their will or censor doctors and medical professions who turned out to be right. He writes, Adam Crichton, these were all political decisions. And he says, until our political leaders are able to speak honestly about the role of government in the hardship and suffering of the past few years, any sort of inquiry will be a waste of time, whatever the terms of reference happen to be." Unquote. Well, this so-called inquiry into the response to the pandemic is a stain on the Albanese government. We were lectured daily by dumb premiers and even dumber chief medical officers whose utterances have been proven to be not just wrong, but socially, personally and economically disastrous and damaging. Australians were lectured every day by Daniel Andrews, Gladys Berejiklian, Kerry Chant, Jeanette Young in Queensland, who was then made governor by the Palaszczuk government, Brett Sutton in Victoria, who's resigned. These people carried on like Hitler's. The suffering was profound. Thousands of people died who should not have died. Yes, the Morrison government should be investigated, but so too should the state governments, and they won't be. We were just dictated to, and not one piece of paper was ever presented to justify what we were ordered to do. I asked premiers to produce the paper. I was cancelled. Cancelled. There was no risk analysis of what vaccination and boosters might do to some people. The more I talk about this, as you can gather from my voice, the angrier I get. This Albanese government inquiry into Australia's response to coronavirus is but the latest Albanese government disgrace. And this is, the, add this to the divisive voice, the reckless and destructive energy policy, the calamitous industrial relations changes and the appalling endorsement of Qantas behaviour. And now you've got this, a litany of failure. This is not an inquiry, nor I might add, are the three people conducting it entirely independent. Only one has direct applicable health expertise, another has health administration experience and the other is an economist from a left of centre think tank. They'll inquire into the Morrison government's response to the coronavirus. The premiers and state governments are exempt. They're Labor mates of Anthony Albanese. Other countries have had inquiries, including New Zealand, with the status of a royal commission. The UK has an inquiry appointed under its Inquiries Act. This here is a Commonwealth-only inquiry. The state's immune. Indeed, in the announcement, it was made clear that, quote, 
outside the scope of the inquiry are, quote, actions taken unilaterally by the state and territory governments, unquote. Outside the scope of the inquiry. There you are. Inquiry's meaningless. Another failure. Sweden had an eight-person commission chaired by justice of the Supreme Court. For us, under this government, we won't have a scarifying analysis of how governments responded to coronavirus. Most of what they did was flawed and they never provided one sentence of justification for what they were doing. We weren't in it together then and now with this fake inquiry, we're not in it together again. Well, contrary to what you might hear, there is talent on the federal opposition benches in Canberra. Often, as with the Republicans in America, the left-wing media ignore much of what the opposition here has to say. In my opinion, he won't thank me for saying this, but I'm going to say it, none is better amongst the coalition ranks than the senator from Queensland, Matt Canavan. He joins me. He's one of the few people I interview who doesn't say to me, what do you want to talk to me about? They're all so terrified, some of them. They can't answer a simple question. This bloke does his own homework. Anyway, Matt, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Do you think voters are aware that Australia has a legalised commitment to 80% of renewable energy by 2030? I mean, does the Coalition support that? Mate, I sometimes think some of my colleagues don't realise this. <laughs> but, uh, yes, we, you know, we've got these, these now in-law uh, commitments. In saying that, I mean, a lot of these laws... Uh, can't really be enforced any anyway, but they're there on our law books, our, our renewable energy targets, our, our targets under under Paris, of course, uh, for for 43% by 2030 and, and net zero, this crazy idea of net zero by 2050. Uh, I mean, notionally, we are still saying, we are still saying in the coalition that we support only a, a 26 to 28% reduction emissions by 2030. Yet uh, the Paris Agreement now has us locked in to a 43% cut. And under the Paris Agreement, you can't go backwards. The agreement, we signed. We signed it, in fact, Greg Hunt and our former government signed it. You can't go backwards under that agreement. So our position now in the coalition is a bit incoherent because we're saying we only want 28% by 2030. We're saying we support the Paris Agreement. Those two positions are now inconsistent. We've got to choose between them. Either we up the emissions reduction is crazy, 43% reduction that the Labor Party wants, or we get out of the Paris Agreement. And I'm very much on the side of the ladder, Alan. This agreement is just rubbish completely, just that provision alone. But you see, shows uh, how silly it is. So see, let's get man, out of it. Let's get out of all of these things and do what's best for Australia. See, man, I've had two government people on here and one coalition person. They'll remain unnamed. And then I played dumb and asked the question. I said, oh, what's the problem here? I mean, you don't want coal? Oh, yeah, yeah, don't want coal. So what is the problem? Carbon dioxide. Oh, yeah, yeah, Well, why do you call it decarbonising, decarbonising the country? Carbon's different from carbon dioxide. Oh, well, uh, well, that's a sort of shorthand way. No, no, it's an accurate way. But however, if carbon dioxide's the problem, I say to them, how much of it is there out there if it's causing a problem? Not one of them could answer. Absolute silence, I don't know. And then I say, well, look, it's 0.04% of the atmosphere. How the hell could yeah, this be causing... Yeah. How could this be causing the problems yeah. that are attributed to carbon dioxide? So, Matt, you're a scientist. Why does the coalition go down this dumb road of this climate change hoax caused by carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, only 3% of it, is contributed to by human beings, and little old Australia is 1.3% of 3% of 0.04%. Do they actually think we're stupid? Someone does. They must. 
Well, I, I don't say I'm a scientist. I'm an economist, which is, a, a, I suppose, a, a poor man's science. But <laughs> I read enough to know what you're saying is exactly true. Uh, uh, that on top of that, of course, that carbon dioxide is only one of very many uh, number of greenhouse gases. And, and I, I'll spell out my beliefs here, so to speak. And I don't know why we have to all state our beliefs on these sort of things. It's all very religious. But yeah, I, I do think uh, it seems that greenhouse gases do warm an atmosphere. That's how the physical atmosphere of the Earth works. And carbon dioxide is one of those greenhouse gases. But as you said, it's only it's only uh, it's only four point zero zero four percent of the world's atmosphere, and 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 it and it's uh, only a very small percentage, only a few percent of actually all the greenhouse gases, That's most it. of which That's is it. water vapor. That's it. And so, and so the, the 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 scientific impact is here a very long stretch. And it would seem to me that the extreme examples, and as I say, I'm not doubting that more carbon dioxide potentially warms the atmosphere, but it would seem that warming is nothing to panic about. It's right. certainly not going to lead. Right. Uh, to as some uh, some of our political leaders suggest that human beings will become extinct uh, from this uh, doubling of carbon man. dioxide emissions. But see, did fact, the coalition the direct the science the did... science says the direct impact of a doubling of carbon emissions is about one degree Celsius increase mm. in the temperature, and that's really nothing really to worry about. But did the coalition support this legislation that we go to eighty percent of renewables by twenty thirty? Now it's law. Now if I drive down the left hand the right hand side of the road. The police will arrest me because the law says you must drive on the left-hand side. So when the government breaks the law, about 80% of renewables well, by 2030, who gets arrested? Who gets no, punished? No, we, we didn't support the we didn't support the government's targets, the government's uh, targets that went through. They did pass through the Senate, but we didn't support them. As I said earlier, we want to notionally we want to roll them back, but we can't. We can't under the Paris. We can't. We can't roll them back without leaving the Paris Agreement. So we've got mm. to choose. You got you got to make a choice here. Uh, do you it, join it, the, the Greta Thunberg radical climate oh, action train or do, we, or do we jump off it now? Wash, wash your mouth out, Greta Thunberg. I mean, honestly, the ch parents should be charged with child cruelty. Everywhere in Europe, governments, as you know, are backing away from this net zero. I mean, I, I quoted earlier in an editorial I did tonight on Alistair Heath in The Telegraph from the London Telegraph, and he wrote, by any rational standard, Sunak, because Sunak's backing away, is merely being pragmatic and realistic, and banning pure mm. petrol cars in six and a bit years' time is a dangerously utopian policy that would guarantee chaos, mass impoverishment, power cuts and a popular revolution. Now, isn't this where we're heading with Bowen? Well, I, I do worry about that, Alan. I, I mean, I think eventually Australian people will wake up. It's just how many lessons in the school of hard knocks do we do we need to take? And, uh, you know, I, I don't want us to go through that uh, because it'll be very painful. People will lose their jobs. Uh, people will have their power cut off and they can't afford to pay their bills. Uh, and I suppose what I'm trying to do is, is warn about this impending train wreck and hopefully you know, put the brakes on this train before it gets there. And so we don't have to go through that. And we can see what's going on in Europe. We've got that benefit. We can see the policies that Chris Bowen, that Anthony Albanese are implementing here are exactly the same as what they've tried in Europe. It's been an absolute disaster. Now, good on Rishi Sunak for trying to inject some form of common sense. It's a very small droplet of common sense in a mad green ocean. But, but at least it's heading in the right direction. I mean, you now got this silly situation where political leaders are promising to ban something, in this case, petrol cars, uh, originally about 15 years from when it was due in 2030. Now they're going to push them back to 2035 or longer. Um, it's a bit like that old pub with the sign that says, you know, oh, well, you can all have free beer tomorrow. 
Uh, I mean, when is when is the end of the petrol car going to come around? Because the, the next political leader that's post Rishi Sunak will probably delay the time as well. And, and no, so what is what is this dance? Why are we going through this ridiculous uh, quite, And no warnings and no risk assessment of electric vehicles, which we've seen blowing up with that lithium-ion batteries and so on. I want to just take you, though, to this... Uh, telling my viewers again, we've had no discussion about this with this bloke. He's the only fellow that says, oh, what are you going to ask me about? Do you know something about this C40, the city's climate leadership group, which I yes, alluded to I earlier? Yes. Now, this comprises 96 yep. cities around the world a twelfth of the world's population and a quarter of the global economy. Melbourne and Sydney are part of this stuff. It's chaired by that London's mayor, Sadiq Khan. They say in order to save the world from climate change, you should only be allowed one return flight of no more than 1,500 kilometres, one return flight every three years. Now, this is like The yep. Voice. I mean, this is stuff that Bowen won't tell us about. Is this madness going to well, take well, root? 96 <laughs> mayors. I think, there's a, I think there's an exception. I think there's some fine print you're missing there, Alan, that you're only allowed one return flight of 15 kilometres a year unless you're a climate activist going to a COP, going to a, <laughs> a one of these um, uh, IPCC climate change conferences. I didn't read If that. you're going to one of those climate change conferences, you can take over as, you can fly as much as you like. In fact, I think it's mandatory you have to travel there by private charter jet. Uh, um, so it is very much, uh, you know, rules for thee but not for me here from the C40 coalition. I think Sadiq Khan actually, he himself flew from London, but I this think, card. just a couple of weeks ago I to mean, New York or some such yeah. uh, to, to, to promote his, his, <laughs> his anti-international flying plan. I mean, it, it, it really, we, we need a modern-day Evelyn War, Alan. We need someone to satirise these people yes. uh, and absolutely, uh, completely... Well, just repeating um, to our viewers, uh, though, Matt, just telling our viewers, I mean, let's take the Brits. I'll come to Australia in a minute. For the Brits, one summer holiday every 36 months, but they won't be able to go from London to Athens because that's more than 1,500 kilometres. They won't be, we won't be able to go from to Sydney to Melbourne. We can't go from Sydney to Melbourne because <laughs> there and back is over 1,700 kilometres. And this mob yes, of mayors yes. want to cut aviation emissions so one flight per person every three years. So, Matt, the aviation world goes broke. Absolutely. And, and uh, it, it, uh, the thing here is if we thought COVID was bad, wait till you hear about the plans for net zero. That's it. Um, because That's even, it. I mean, some of this C40 agenda is obviously pretty out there uh, uh, and, and probably will never be implemented. But even at a macro level here, if you look at the International Energy Agency projections, they're, they're saying that they need, they want oil demand to fall from 100 billion barrels a day, at the, which it is at the moment. It's just hit a record level, by the way. It's back over the record it hit in 2019 pre-COVID. Uh, from there to 77 billion barrels a day in just eight years, just seven years now, actually, 2030. So in the next seven years, a fall of almost 25%. That would be a greater reduction in oil demand than we experienced during COVID. And, and, and just think what happened. We stopped all flights. We stopped driving around. We stopped going to work every day. We stopped going, dropping our kids off at school. So net zero, just by 2030, is there, their plans at least, is to have a bigger impact uh, on our ability to travel, see our loved ones, uh, than uh, during COVID. I mean, this is absurd. It, it, it's not going to happen. But, you but see, we're Matt, telling lies to the Australian I mean, people. you're a Queenslander. And uh, eventually those lies will catch up with us. Yeah, I mean, you're a Queenslander. You know, ban petrol cars or whatever. But if you travel from Brisbane to the Gold Coast, they're spending billions of dollars building a six- and eight-lane highway. What for? If there are going to be yeah. no petrol car? What's all this about? I mean, the contradictions are uh, enormous. You have said and written that an honest appraisal is needed 
on the cost, risks and feasibility of continuing down this net zero pathway. Why wouldn't Peter Dutton get out there and say this day after day? You're absolutely right. What are the risks? What are the costs? What's the feasibility of going down this net zero pathway? Because we're heading over a cliff. I've said for 10 years, it's a national economic suicide note. We should have that. Shouldn't the coalition be prosecuting that argument? Well, I, I, I'm very much on that side, Alan. I'm encouraging Peter and others to do that. I can't read people's minds and, and tell you why they're doing the opposite. I, I would say that uh, at least over the last few years, and, and, I, and I, I think Peter's done a good job of the voice, so I'm still holding out hope here, but over the last few years, uh, a bunch of pollsters has hijacked the leadership of the Liberal and National Parties, Absolutely. and we've effectively made decisions based on what, Absolutely. what we think you want us to think, you know, yeah. not what we think is in the best interest of the Absolutely. country or long-term for, for our children or grandchildren, just what do people think at the moment, let's just do that. Now, uh, as I say, I've I'm, I'm got some hope for Peter Dutton uh, and his leadership because we didn't apply that formulaic, pollster-driven approach with regards to The Voice. No. Uh, if we had have done that with The Voice, we would have been on the yes side because the poll shouldn't have said, six months ago he shouldn't said, have said two-thirds of said, Australians... But he were, shouldn't have said if it loses, we'll have another referendum. It's not, no, I, no, I, I, I think, know. Look, we can I, quibble about, mate. I'm not... Yeah. I, look, we, I think we, he's let's, doing a good let's, job. I let's think take that, our wins. He's done a good job on it and yeah. we're probably going to get a good result, uh, make well, sure everyone well, votes, get out there, encourage a friend to vote. And then we need to use it as a template, Alan. We say, see, leadership matters. Courage is contagious. We need, we need to follow a similar approach yeah. on net zero. I mean, you and I know Dutton is a good man, a tough man, and his values are very sound. However, he's surrounded by all these wets, which we call linos, liberals in name only. Just coming back to this thing, you see, Bowen is openly committed. Bowen's admitted that he wants 22,500 watt solar panels installed every day for seven years. Now, that won't happen. He wants 40 seven megawatt wind turbines every month and 10,000 kilometres, it'll be more than that, of transmission lines to get all this energy from wind farms and the solar farms mm. to the grid. Now, Matt, you know, are they going to... You're a National Party person. Are they going to confiscate farmers' land? Well, they'll have to to achieve that if that's what they really want to do. Uh, I very much hope it doesn't come... To that, and as you would know right now, these companies have to voluntarily agree, get agreements. And look, often that does happen because they get paid. The people who host the wind turbines get paid and the solar panels get paid a fortune. And it's the neighbours that have to pick up the bill in some respects. That's changing, though. There's a group of farmers in the Southern Downs that are apparently rejecting uh, approaches right now as people see the impacts of these things and how to hurt other farmers. So, look, this is going to lead to some form of confrontation. And uh, that's why myself and many other than the Nationalist Party are taking up this cause uh, and saying, hey, enough's enough. We don't. We, should, we can't, Alan, we can't save the polar bear. If you're worried climate change is going to you know, destroy the ice caps and everything, you can't save the polar bear by killing the koala bear. Uh, and that's, that's what's happening right now. Vast swathes of our, our beautiful natural landscapes are being absolutely destroyed uh, by wind farms, by, by solar farms, and totally unnecessarily. They don't do anything. They hardly produce any power. They're the dull bludgers of the energy system. They only turn up for work when they want to. Uh, and, and it's completely for naught. And I don't want to see our wonderful Australian landscapes and our beautiful animals, uh, beautiful birds, our sugar gliders get destroyed by these rapacious foreign-owned renewable energy companies that are just out there to make a buck on the back of you paying more for power. So we've got to put a stop to it. Uh, there's a big campaign building uh, across the bush on this. And 
uh, I do think the likes of Chris Bowen are starting to get a bit nervous about the political reaction and backlash that he's, he's instigated by uh, poking this bee's nest. Good on you. Good on you, Matt. Well, I've said over and over again, I think Matt, uh, I think Chris Bowen is the most dangerous politician this country has seen since World War II. And quite frankly, if he takes us down the road and is successful in doing all of that, we don't know what the damage will be. But perhaps we've got to suffer. Fortunately for us, Alan, he's not the smartest. He's not the smartest politician since World War II. That would be a more dangerous. <laughs> That's right. Uh, co -co uh, the the uh, most dangerous. I said not the smartest. The most dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt. Good to talk to you, my friend. Thanks, Keep Alan. at it. We really appreciate you, the work that you do. There he is, Matt Canavan, a senator for Queensland. He comes from a beautiful part of the world, I might add. I was up there recently at Yapoon, not far from Rockhampton. Matt Canavan makes a lot of sense. Thank God we've got people like that. We can't afford to pretend, I've said this often, that what Bowen is doing on energy policy is going to be anything other than the national economic suicide note that for years I have predicted it would be. It's obvious that Bowen and the Albanese government, in spite of all their travels at taxpayers' expense, don't seem to understand what's happening in the rest of the world. Politically, net zero is on the nose in many European countries. I'll be having a look at that right through tonight. This is so important. In July, the Swedish parliament officially abandoned its 100% renewable energy target to meet net zero by 2045. The finance minister told the Swedish parliament, quote, we need more electricity production. We need a stable energy system, unquote. This is Sweden, who've got huge mountains and deep lakes, so hydroelectricity plays a key part in their renewable energy supply. They can afford to ditch fossil fuels. Only a couple of months ago, the Telegraph newspaper in the UK reported that, quote, sweeping bans to cut greenhouse emissions in Europe are leading to widespread public backlash. Climate coercion is a very bad way to cut greenhouse gas emissions in Western democracies, unquote. The same UK newspaper also warned that, quote, Germany is heading for a political meltdown. Their leader, Olaf Scholz, faces a reckoning as Germans are resisting his green leadership. And the BBC in July admitted that Britain is not capable of meeting its net zero targets, which is precisely what I've said in relation to Bowen. The Albanese government thinks it'll be a global leader on net zero and climate action. That's hubris of the worst kind. Well, in a move which the British journalist Alistair Heath has described as having the potential to, quote, upend British politics, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, miles behind in the polls, has declared war on the Green Establishment. He's talking about a gentler, more humane, sophisticated environmentalism committed to protecting consumers. Now, Peter Dutton should note the Conservatives are in political trouble in Britain, but as Alistair Heath writes, quote, there is now clear green water between the parties, making life trickier for Sir Keir Starmer. As Alistair Heath warns, the Green Mafia in both Labor and the Conservative parties, quote, will unleash every dirty trick in the book to force him, that's Sunak, to back down. But one comment by Alistair Heath stands out, quote, by any rational standard, Sunak is merely being pragmatic and realistic. Banning pure petrol cars in six and a bit years' time, he writes, is a dangerously utopian policy that would guarantee chaos, mass impoverishment, power cuts and a popular revolution. Are you listening, Bowen? As Alistair Heath has written, referring to banning petrol cars and oil and gas boilers, quote, 
They're all examples of what the philosopher Rob Henderson calls luxury beliefs, ideas adopted by hypocritical, jet-setting elites to highlight their high social status, even though they inflict immense cost on those who can't afford expensive electric cars or spare thousands of dollars to replace a boiler with technology that is not yet ready, unquote. Well, it gets worse. And this is amazing stuff. I've talked to Matt Canavan about this. I have to repeat. Is anyone in the coalition listening? Bowen is not, of course. There's an outfit called C40, Citizens Climate Leadership Group. There's a group of 96 cities around the world that represent a twelfth of the world's population and a quarter of the global economy. Melbourne and Sydney are part of the C40 cities. C40 is the name given in 2006 when the number of cities reached 40. C for city and 40 cities. Now there are 96 cities, a veritable global network of mayors. It's chaired by London's Sadiq Khan. All these mayors meet and sign up to this dangerous rubbish. And this is why Clover Moore wants no one to drive cars and for everyone to be on bicycles. The latest report says, in order to save the world from climate change, you should only be allowed one return flight every three years. That's wherever you're going. Doesn't matter where you're going, but no more than 1,500 kilometres in total distance. And the C40 mob want this by 2030. This is what Bowen and his ilk are on about, but they won't tell us, like The Voice. One return flight of no more than 1,500 kilometres every three years. So this mob of mayors want all their residents to fly less, airlines to increase the proportion of sustainable aviation fuel they use, but the guts of it is this. One summer holiday for POMs every 36 months, but Londoners won't be able to go from London to Athens. That's more than 1,500 kilometres there and back. Even if the POMs wanted to go to Glasgow, they're in trouble. There and back is more than 1,500 kilometres. You see, if you kept one flight per person every three years, you'll cut aviation emissions, of course, because there will be no aviation industry. The airlines go broke. The foreign holiday disappears. This is the ultimate pie-in-the-sky rubbish. Can you imagine one 1,500-kilometre trip every three years? Is this the stuff the linos in the coalition preach? Liberals in name only? Will this apply to woke millionaires and billionaires? To the corporate elites and the politicians? I suspect not. Why not? And remember, this global network of mayors are the same mob who want to say, eat less meat and don't drive a car. Now, can someone in the Dutton-led coalition put some water between it and Labor on this destructive energy, net zero global nonsense? Take a stand. See the energy wreck coming down the track and get in now and make this sort of energy rubbish an election issue. I mean, you either stand for net zero or you don't. It will fail us. Is the coalition going to be part of the failure? And Clover Moore in Sydney and Sally Cap in Melbourne, the mayors, beware. We know what you're up to. If what I am telling you is not an economic suicide note, what is? One airline trip every three years. No further than 1,500 kilometres there and back. One trip, Sydney to Melbourne, every three years. Well, not if you want to get back, because that adds up to over 1,700 kilometres. And they want all residents of C40, 96 cities, to use airlines less frequently. Economic suicide for the airlines. Have you heard any politician raise his voice against this rubbish? Yes, so forgive me, but this is a really serious issue. And just on this net zero theme, I spoke to Matt Canavan earlier. As you know, Andrew Montford is the current director of Net Zero Watch. 
His background is as a chemist, but he's branched out far beyond that. But he's a fierce critic of climate alarmism and global warming. He founded in 2006 the Bishop Hill Blog, a forum designed to accommodate and facilitate discussion amongst those who question climate alarmism, who then and now are phased out of the mainstream media. Say any of this stuff and you're a nut or an alarmist. They're the alarmist. So I thought we'd have a yarn with him. Andrew Montford published his first book in 2010, The Hockey Stick Illusion, in which he explores the politicisation and corruption of science since the beginning of the 21st century. In an article last year titled The Headlong Rush to Net Zero, he argued in horse racing language that the rush to net zero, quote, makes a new Great Depression a racing certainty. He joins me now from Scotland, of all places, where he's worried about he might get too cold. He's left his sweater at home. Andrew, thank you for your time. Um, if, we keep, if we keep going like this, banning fossil fuels and rushing headlong, headlong into renewable energy, are we heading to a new Great Depression? Yeah, I, I, I think it, 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 the, the, the Great Depression is probably um, the best scenario we can hope for. I think it, it, it's really there is a serious threat that we could end up with societal breakdown. I, you can't run a modern society on renewables. It's just impossible. The whole net zero urge is entirely irrational. It, it's not being driven by reason. It's being driven by fear and essentially this cult mentality um, that responds to it. And so we're going and doing things without any plan, without any, any thought to, to how we actually do the, the things they say they want to do in practical terms. And that will eventually lead to disaster. We've seen in recent weeks, um, just over the last week or two, we've had Rishi Sunak, our Prime Minister, um, starting to raise questions about the cost. Now, this is a major change. Um, I hope that is the start of a return to rationality, but um, there are still plenty, out, plenty of people out there who want to carry on the way we are, and if, if they stay in power and, you know, looks like we'll get a Labour government here next time who are even greener than the Conservatives. Um, so if they carry on on the same road, yes, it could end in disaster. Andrew, you mentioned a word there which is really important. Return, or three words, return to rationality. Now, I've said over and over again on this programme and elsewhere, it's I must be stupid because I can't understand how carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, and I keep repeating that so that people understand it, 0.04% of the atmosphere, but human beings in industry or consumption are responsible worldwide for 3%, and little old Australia is responsible for 1.3% of 3% of 0.04%, and so we stand the economy on its head and sign this economic suicide note. Rationality has gone out the window. In layman's language, can you just tell our viewers what these people are on about with net zero? So, yeah, I think what started out as um, a reasonable scientific prospect that, that, you know, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, that's not really disputed. Um, you're right that it's only, it's only a, a tiny fraction of the atmosphere, but the science of the greenhouse effect is not, is not really disputed. But that has then 
if you like, um, grown legs and, and has been turned from, okay, it's a greenhouse gas and will produce a little bit of warming into, oh, there will be loads of, loads of feedback effects and, and we'll get a lot of warming and that will turn into a crisis and an emergency. Um, and then that's gone even further and it's turned into a cult that people are being driven by this fear and um, are going off in, into, into the crazy net zero stuff. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, we've got ourselves into a real pickle here and we need to get back into pure rationality. Mm. It was quite funny. We had, there was a, a, an article in the Times ye um, yesterday by um, an economist called Paul Johnson who used to be on the Climate Change Committee, which is the government's official advisors on net zero, um, and the people who produced the, the plans for getting there. He's now no longer on the committee, and he, he put his hands up and said, we don't have any sensible plan for getting there. There is no plan. I mean, if you go back and read the, uh, the reports that the Climate Change Committee produces, they're essentially public relations documents. They're saying, oh, this wonderful technology is coming, that wonderful technology is coming, but there is no serious analysis of the problem, and how you might solve it, um, the manpower you might need to solve it, the minerals you might need to solve it, um, the money you, you might need to solve it. Um, this thing where Rishi Sunak said um, people haven't been, you know, successive governments, he said, haven't been straight with the British public about the cost that is going to be involved. He was quite right. And now we're starting to see people say, well, yes, we do need some honesty about it. And the costs are absolutely horrendous. Mm -hmm. So the official line is that it's going to cost £1.5 trillion by 2050. Mm -hmm. That's roughly £100,000 per household. That's the official line. Mm -hmm. If you go in and look at the numbers behind it, you realise it's essentially fictional. Mm -hmm. the, the costs are going to be way, way higher yeah, nine, than that. Nine trillion Probably by 2060. Nine, nine trillion by 2060. Nine trillion. I mean, yeah. this reminds me of coronavirus. It, 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 this is coronavirus all over again. I mean, corona, there was no evidence for coronavirus, no evidence for masks, no evidence about lockdowns, no evidence about locking kids out of school, no evidence about closing business down. Away you go, dictates from governments, these wood ducks out there who don't do any reading. I mean, how can people talk about a climate emergency when there is no supporting evidence? Absolutely. I mean, the climate emergency thing is, 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 is quite interesting, isn't it? Because, as you say, there is little or no evidence. And that is the official line of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If they go through all the weather extremes and the impacts of weather, there's almost none of them. They say they can even detect any change. So floods, droughts, things like that, hurricanes... Essentially, they're saying we can't see any any meaningful change. We can't really detect any meaningful trend. Yeah, yeah. And they're saying we think it's unlikely we're going to be able to detect any meaningful trend for decades to come. So you know, it, I think the only exception is heat waves, just about. Um, so, yeah, there is no climate emergency. The new head of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Professor Jim Skay, has just has come out and said, look, if we hit 1.5 degrees... Don't expect to see, you know, terrible things happening. It just isn't the case. So the official line is, 
yeah, we're not in a, cli mm. a climate emergency. How are we your, have all these green become, activists saying right. that we are. Andrew, how does, how does the public become so gullible? Is it because they're frightened like they were in coronavirus? You've talked about scaremongering by green activists and hate campaigns launched by naysayers, but how can we be so gullible on all of this? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look back over the last two decades, the propaganda has been absolutely relentless, hasn't it? I mean, it is. every yeah, newspaper yeah. pretty much in the UK is completely on board with the story of a climate emergency. Yes, yeah. um, the, 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 the television stations are all completely on board with it. Very interesting, in the, in the UK, we, we have this new channel, GB News, which has broken that mould and is starting to talk about climate in, in more rational terms. And they've, they've been a huge success, I think, directly as a result of that. But the rest of the media is, is still pretty much on board with it. The, the Daily but Telegraph see, yeah, has, has recently yeah, I mean, started that, that, much more sceptical. They're not just green activists, Andrew. I mean, they're in the Conservative Party over there. They're in the Liberal Party here. I mean, I just wonder whether these people are dumb or just don't read. I mean, Australia, for example, is a resource um, powerhouse, a resource powerhouse. We're in coal and gas and uranium and lithium. We've got the lot. Why should we surrender this because of a scare campaign? Yeah, I mean, well, of course, you know, if you put your head above the parapet and, and say there is no climate emergency, you have to risk being attacked left, right and centre. So the media will be on you. They will be speaking to your employer and, and, and trying to get you fired and cancelled and that sort of thing. And this has gone on for 20 years. So there are very few people who, like me, are in the lucky position of being able to speak absolutely freely on net zero because you know, we have, you know, we don't rely on, on, on advertising or something to to fund us so yeah we can speak freely but you know if you're in a university absolutely you can't speak freely if you're in the media no you can't you rely on on green advertisers to keep you in business so yeah it's a brave it's a brave man or woman who sticks their head above don't the talk to me i know and I that's know, why I know all about we have that. this consensus <laughs> i know all about that yeah absolutely <laughs> I know. but i mean china just for the benefit of our viewers this is how mad it is china are financing and supporting as i speak to you tonight, new coal-fired power plants in the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Mozambique, Malawi, South Africa, Zimbabwe and Serbia. I mean, why the hell are we carrying on the way <laughs> yeah. we are? I mean, before yeah. COVID... And, you know, I mean, you ask politicians that question here and they say it's because we've got to demonstrate our, our, our climate leadership. And you go, well, OK, so this, this is a, a, a multi-trillion pound project to enable politicians to virtue signal. I mean, it's just, it's utter madness. It is. Utter madness. It is. I mean, before COVID, India was planning to increase its coal-fired electricity generation by almost a quarter in three years. And here, just for our viewers, we would need land, I've told you before, the size of Victoria and some, and then you wouldn't have room enough for the wind and solar farms to meet the net zero target. I mean, wind turbines require 2,000 square metres per megawatt, coal-fired power, 25. Or do we locate the wind turbines offshore where Europe and America have said no? Bowen's still talking about wind turbines offshore. They're four times, four times dearer than onshore. And then there's a shortage of vessels to install offshore turbines. Andrew, you and I both know Michael Schellenberger, a world renowned environmental activist. I repeat, environmental activist for 20 years. In 2020, he apologised for, quote, 
the climate scare we've created over the past 30 years. Of climate change, he said, it is not even our most serious environmental problem. Once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Andrew, why, just ask you again, do you reckon the world is being led by the nose on this climate change hoax by the same politicians who ordered compliance on coronavirus and almost every order that was given with no evidence provided has now been demolished? When are we going to stop being led by the nose? I am more hopeful in the last couple of weeks than I have been for, for a decade. We are now starting to see the consensus breaking, I think. The, I think before um, we started talking, you, you, you mentioned the, the pain that people were starting to feel. That is really hitting home here. I think three or four years ago, you know, times maybe were, were you know, we were a bit wealthier and, and people could afford to ignore the cost that net zero was, 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 uh, burdening them with. I think the energy crisis of 21, 22 um, has, has hit home now and people are going, we can't take this anymore. So I, I think we're starting to see the climate consensus start to crumble. I think yeah, even people who were completely on board with it, they're starting to try to distance themselves from it because I think they realize like uh, uh, um, COVID, that there's going to be a lot of very angry people whose lives are going, are going to have been ruined by this. And they, you know, fingers are going yep. to be pointed, blame is going to be shared out, and they don't want to be the one to have to accept it. Well, so, that's why... That, word, I think we're starting to see change. That's why I'm talking to you. Great to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you for your time. Very much appreciated. Andrew Thank Montford, you. who's a writer, he's an editor, he's a voice behind the climate change sceptic blog, Bishop Hill. Andrew Montford. OK, before we go, I am grateful to Paul Santamaria, KC, formerly QC, in an address that he gave on the proposed voice to Parliament, he was speaking from a personal perspective. In that speech, he incorporated a statement by an Indigenous woman, Dilapuma Wu Langaganu, who lives at Elko Island, E-L-C-H-O Island, which is a tiny island off Arnhem Land. If you're to visit the island, you need a permit from the Northern Land Council. The island has a large base population of 2,200 people, which includes 70 non-Aboriginal people. But Paul Santamaria quoted from a letter this Indigenous woman wrote. It was written to one of his nephews who had taught on the island for a couple of years. Dilapuma is an educated woman, mostly Indigenous, but there is some Italian blood. And she wrote about the voice. As Warren Mundine says, it's completely false to think that Indigenous communities speak with one view of the world, one voice. In fact, the reason Indigenous Australians won't vote yes is that there's a high degree of resentment towards one tribe speaking on behalf of another. Amongst other things, Dilapuma wrote, and I quote, We live very traditional lives here in a modern world. We already have Aboriginal people elected into Parliament to represent us, but they don't. Federal funding allocated to people like me doesn't reach us. There's an educated Indigenous woman writing this. She wrote, We never see a politician until election time. They come with promises and lies, get our vote and then disappear. Now listen to this. She's written this a woman from a little island, Elko, off the Northern Territory. She wrote, The voice is being pushed by black elites for their agenda. These black elites don't live like I do. 
and my people in overcrowded homes, minimum 10, maximum 30, to a three-bedroom house, chronic illnesses, poverty, unemployment, low education rates, suicide, mental health, child removals, youth crime, general crime, and deaths on a daily basis. She said, she's written, I lost 13 members of my family in one year. That's on average one death a month. I know these black elites are selling the voices something good for us remote and isolated Aboriginal people who live the life that they don't, but it will do nothing for us. It'll just give the black elites more power to abuse. We are out of mind and out of sight. We're ignored on a daily basis. She writes, it's not one size fits all when it comes to Aboriginal issues. We need action on the ground given to grassroots people like myself and we need money to run programs that we know will work for our people and in our regions. She writes, we're all Australians and protected by the same constitution. These black elites are using remote Aboriginal people as bait for their own personal and political gain. She said, I've been an advocate for Aboriginal people since I was a child, marching with my mother, working in services that are supposed to help my people. They can do what they're saying, they will do without a voice to Parliament and without changing the Constitution. She wrote, this is a dangerous move. We must protect the Australian Constitution with all our might. We cannot allow these people to use emotional blackmail and, blackmail and guilt to secure their abuse of power forever. There you are. That's part of a letter by an Indigenous woman, Dilapuma Wulangagin Yu, a powerful Indigenous argument as to why we should vote no. Well, that's it from me tonight. I'll be back tomorrow night. You can listen to tonight's program on the app. Just search Alan Jones tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock. I am Alan Jones. You're watching ADH. Thank you for being with us. Good night.